Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. Today I have with me Rohin Bhatt, who uses he or they as their pronouns. Rohin Bhatt is a non-binary queer rights activist, lawyer and bioethicist. He is currently working with senior advocates Indira Jaisingh and Anand Grover. He graduated from Gujarat National Law University in 2021 with a BSc LLB honors and a master of bioethics at Harvard Medical School in 2022. He's a co-founder of the Indian Bioethics Project at Gujarat National Law University which aims to bring Indian voices to the intersections of law, medicine and bioethics. Apart from being a regular contributor to the leaflet where he writes on issues of queer rights, reproductive justice and constitutional law, his work has be- appeared in both public platforms such as the Hindu, the Indian Express, India Forum, the Wire as well as academic journals like the Law School Policy Review, the Indian Journal of Medical Ethics and so on. Thank you so much uh, Rohin for taking out time to speak uh, with me welcome to queerness and storytelling in india thank you for having me so i know that you are very active on twitter and um, especially in the last i think couple of uh, months probably you have been tweeting a lot about the marriage debates that were going on uh, in supreme court and specifically uh, pointing out the nuances of these debates why it should be called marriage equality and not necess- not necessarily a same sex marriage and you wrote a couple of articles also um in leaflet and other uh, platforms so walk us through what it means for you to be there in the court and i'm assuming you were there in the court right when these uh, debates so what in what capacity were you there in the court and what is your first hand experience of these uh, you know debates which for any way uh, live streamed for us but i want to know from you what did you make of it you know it was quite an interesting thing because this was one of the first major queer rights litigation that i was a part of as a lawyer now i saw myself in the court not just as a lawyer but also as a queer person right and it was quite surreal not just in the sense that here i was less than a year at the bar assisting one of the leaders of the queer rights movement in courts mr grover who started off this first with the first petition in late 1990s and so it was kind of surreal that was the first part of it the second part of it was placing myself in that courtroom as a queer person and not as a lawyer because these debates were incredibly personal for me and as they were for multiple other queer lawyers that were part of the litigating teams it was truly powerful to see uh people talk about and with such passion with such force and such alacrity and eloquence about what the constitution ought of india to be what does it mean to be a truly equal citizen what rights do the constitute does the constitution grant to queer citizens but at the same time there was the other side as there is in any case uh and that side used completely dehumanizing language they used weird moral panic examples the solicitor general of india for example compared queer marriages to incest in one of his arguments somebody else went around saying oh marriages for procreation and recreation whatever that means uh and so on and so forth look i am not somebody who will say that this was an open and shut case i believe that the other side had a case but the way in which the case is case was presented was dehumanizing it was completely devoid of arguments on law it was completely grounded in not the constitution of india but it was grounded in religious moralities and this religious morality cuts across religions you know so opposition to queer rights 
as I see it, makes for very strange bedfellows. Uh, you have people who are the oppressor and the oppressed in one case, people who are at each other's throats, one party who wants to commit a genocide on the other, agreeing on this issue and kind of making sure that they're all on the same side. And this is not the first time it has happened. It happened immediately after Koshal as well, where Christians, Muslims, Hindus, all of them came together to oppose queer rights. So that's the second part of it. The third part, and this is a disappointment that I've been harboring for perhaps the longest time, and it's perhaps something that like hurts me the most, is the kind of dehumanizing language that was used by the lawyers for the petitioners. Make no mistake. Right, The lawyers who represented the petitioners were some of the brightest, the best lawyers of this country today. But the language that they used showed to me that they had not chosen to acquaint themselves with the terminology. They had not chosen to acquaint themselves with the movement that they sought to represent. And so for a lot of, you know, across both sides of the of the case. You had people saying transgenders repeatedly. You had people using all sorts of terms that the community itself does not prefer, like the third gender. And so that was the sec th second, third part of it. And the final part of it was positioning myself as a queer person and as a lawyer. I think it was really hard for me to be in that courtroom at times. It was really hard to see one's existence being called all sorts of things. These people, right, uh, wouldn't refer to us. Uh, who are they? The idea here is to kind of create a monolith of the queer community in India, that which is urban elitist, and to deprive them of rights, saying, look, this is not what most of the society wants. This is a small bunch of people who've come to court. And it's not true, right? Who are the petitioners before the court? People like Akai Padmashali, who've been on the streets. People like Zainab Patel. People like Kushbu. You know, these are the people who represent the vast cross-section of the Indian society as much as they do of the queer people in the society. So, you had, of course, there's no denying that a lot of people who came to uh, the court were privileged individuals. Of course, so a lot of them belonged to urban settings. A lot of them were perhaps, as the government put it, elite. But it was not a, an urban elite demand. It was a demand that cuts across cross-sections of the society who may not necessarily agree with each other on other things. But in this fight for equality, we were all united. So like when you say about uh, you know religions, like people who usually uh, oppose each other, where uh, bedfellows in this case. So on one hand, I understand it's a government which is opposing, right? Uh, but on the other hand, there are religious groups which were opposing. So are these uh, specific groups, like are they making a claim on behalf of the entire uh, religion or are they making a claim, specific claim on behalf of their organization? So the way it works, right? So let's look at how the case started. All of us went to court seeking reliefs under the Hindu Marriage Act. Uh, most cases were under the Hindu Marriage Act, right? A bunch of cases were under the Special Marriage Act. Third set of cases like that of Zainab Patel were for all religious laws. Now, India's personal law, that is the law that governs marriages, divorce, adoption, is a mix of English common law and of religious law in that your religion and your customs are codified through law, which has been passed by the legislature. So to that extent, religion forms a necessary part of the law. That notwithstanding, Article 13 of the Constitution recognizes customs and usage as law within the meaning of Article 13, Clause 3. So religion to that extent forms a part of your law. To that extent, these parties may have had a right to be heard. I'm not saying did they have a right. 
may have had a right to be heard saying look we are we represent this and this religious organization since you are dealing with religious laws hear us as a, right and i don't know if they had a claim because look india look at india in terms of the way religion is practiced right uh, look at hindus for example hundreds of sects hundreds of uh, schools of thought how do you kind of bind all of them into one claim so there were bunch of claims some representing some organization some representing other organizations right so those claims could have there was a case for them to have been heard but on the first day the chief justice and the bench made it clear that they are not interfering with religious personal law so out goes to out go those claims what remains only petitions under the special marriage act now what is a special marriage act the special marriage act is a secular form of marriage it is akin to just the state recognition of the marriage and not a religious recognition of marriage it has no religious significance once the court had decided that what they were hearing at this instant is only a marriage under the special marriage act now the act was initially formed for intercaste and interfaith couples once the court decides that we are only going to hear cases under the special marriage act all those claims should have been dismissed but they were not some lawyers continued to represent even though they did not have a brief to that name because they were being represented only certain religious bodies and since religious laws were not in question they had no case to be heard before the court nevertheless they were heard uh i don't take any grief with that uh if they were parties before the court and they wanted that day in court it's up to the judges to allow them or to not allow them to speak and make the case heard now to answer your question about how do you would just go back to your question please what is your question yeah i was wondering like whether these claims that you were saying came on behalf of specific organizations or they were making a claim on behalf of the entire religion uh because i i'm i'm wondering if the government for instance cannot claim or make even though we know clearly the religious ideology of a gov- of this government they cannot claim to represent only one religion so i'm assuming no. that they are they are making a claim uh, as on behalf of yes. the parliament right but what about other organizations which you, like you said there might be hindu muslim uh, christian organizations which are representing so are they representing on like on behalf of their organization so there were a bunch of petitions right so there were a bunch of petitions some of them were organizations some of them were individual people some of them were you know groups of organization coming together so what has happened is you have a vast array of parties right i don't know how many lawyers argued i've lost count but so i think it was around 50 lawyers who addressed the court roughly speaking they represented vast array of parties and so to that extent yes there were organizations there were religious organizations there were non religious organizations there were individuals and so on and so forth there were states of the country which had also petitioned the courts so all of these had come together so i'm thinking like uh, from 2018 uh, till now we have uh, seen especially in like popular media you know bollywood there has been a seemingly i would say a uh, better representation of uh, gay and lesbian uh, protagonists in particular and a lot of straight actors obviously playing these roles but there has been a lot of sort of focus on marriage and family in particular to so from from but from what i'm look like seeing you know through these live stream this hasn't necessarily made an impact at least uh, you know when it comes to what the arguments of the opposing counsel or for that matter the very fact that we have organizations which claim to be both hindu and queer and may have some affiliation with the right wing uh, but then the government uh, is not sort of moving away from its position right because they had opposed the 
uh, petition in 2018 and they are still opposing the uh, but then they seemed more like willing to like from what i remember the rss had saying uh, about uh, sort of uh, homosexuality in general uh, so i'm just wondering like is there still uh, some degree of ambivalence in the government's position or are they clearly opposed because i'm thinking of how there has been a lot of groups in particular who are very proudly associating themselves with the government and proudly claiming to be queer as well so how are they responding to the government's uh, sort of you know uh, especially what uh, tushar mehta right who is the uh, attorney uh, general responding uh, yeah so i think with groups that claim to be both hindu and queer i think look there are two things to it first is a tomes of research of scholars like salim kirwai rutwanita which shows that there was a tolerance if not acceptance of queerness in ancient india but the groups that claim to be queer and hindu today and the groups that claim to be homo nationalists today for them i think it is more about their ideas of supremacy rather than it is for of equality so i think there's a certain level of cognitive dissonance that's going on there and in how they see themselves so i don't want to speak for them but i think for them it's more about their ideas of supremacy and who's a hindu rather than what does it mean to truly be uh an egalitarian society as we must be if we are queer just from a sort of a legal uh, perspective like uh, i know you said that uh, the government is considering uh, these petitions under the special marriage act but uh, uh, aren't there also petitions under the hindu marriage act no the supreme court in its immense wisdom has chosen to not examine religious law so what is now under consideration is only under special marriage act so we don't have uh any religious laws that are in question before the supreme court okay that's that's good that's good to know because i mean because even the word hindu in the hindu marriage act is very expansive right if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. yes uh buddhism uh sikhism jainism sikhism jainism yeah. yes and anybody who does not align with any other religion if i'm not wrong yeah tell me a little bit about your experience of working with the uh, Indira Jai Singh and Anand Grover, like you mentioned, Grover was part of the earlier uh, petitions. Perhaps the Nas petition, right before, mm-hmm. uh, even before was, Nas, the Abwa petition. Ah, uh, oh finally... right, yes, the yes. AIDS, the uh, Bhedavid Andolan uh, petition. Yes. Yeah. So how 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 is it like to work with people who have been part of this legal struggle? I think it's surreal, you know. To this day, I think it does not hit me. at times about the enormity of who i'm working with that's the first part the second part is uh in both ms jessing and mr grover i've found two mentors who let me be my own queer self and continue to be a lawyer in so many other trans people that i know and queer people that i know their bodies are heavily populist uh i've gone i've gone to the office wearing flaming red nail paints and nobody's raised an eyebrow and to that extent i think i'm incredibly privileged to work with them in that i don't have to police myself or censor myself in how i go to the office or how i present as a non-binary person and that i think is a matter of true privilege that very few lawyers get beat men or women or queer people right uh, of course it's more for women and queer people than it is for cis men that's the first part the second part i think is also being at the forefront of litigation like this less than a year at the bar i've done at least three cases before constitution benches of the supreme court and i think that is an opportunity that very few queer people very few lawyers get within the first year at the bar you know and so couldn't have asked for better bosses not just in terms of the kind of work that i do but also in terms of uh 
how they've let me flourish as a lawyer and how they've let me also simultaneously flourish as a queer person. And you did also write a petition, not a petition, a letter uh, to the Chief Justice mm-hmm. of India, I think, about pronouns. Like, so did you hear back anything? Like, what happened after that? Yes. So there were two letters. The first letter was written to the Chief Justice. Uh, the first letter asked for pronouns and appearance slips. What does that mean? It means that when we when we go to a court and we present our name, we need to present our names to the court so that it can go on the what's called the record of proceedings of every day. So what I asked the Chief Justice to do was to mention uh, allow us to mention our pronouns so that they can be correctly um, put on the order sheet or the ROP. And so that queer lawyers like myself are not misgendered. The second problem also was a lot of people I know who are non-binary and queer who use MX, their names were either not coming up on the order sheet or what was happening was MX was being changed to MS. And so there, there was a lot of misgendering as well. So the second set of letters that I wrote was to Dr. Um, to Ms. Justice Hima Kohli. Uh, she has the gender sensitization committee. I asked her for gender neutral bathrooms on the Supreme Court premises because as a queer lawyer, I would want, and as a non-binary person, I don't feel comfortable going to male or female bathrooms. It has, so around three to four weeks after writing that letter, the second letter, I heard heard back from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has taken active steps, right? Uh, Which has chosen to go woke as I would, I would say, and I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. Uh, so now the advocates portal where we present our names is made gender neutral. Uh, there is now a representative of the queer community on the gender sensitization committee. There are nine new gender neutral bathrooms that are being opened in the Supreme Court soon. Um, and finally, uh, the expansion of scope of the gender sensitization committee to the gender and sexuality sensitization committee is actively under consideration by the court. So in that extent, to that extent, I think we have managed to get the first step of making the Indian legal system fully inclusive. Uh, you know, in a lot of district courts, for example, the Patiala House Court that is right down the street from the Supreme Court, there are already gender neutral bathrooms, so they call it a uh, third gender restrooms. Of course, you know uh, that notwithstanding, they are already gender neutral bathrooms. But the fact that the Supreme Court has done this provides a lot of lawyers who are at the High Court with significant impetus to get the respective High Courts to do stuff like this. I think the Chief Justice and Justice Foley, to their credit, have ushered in an era of the Supreme Court where it is truly inclusive. Now, a lot is yet to be desired. That is not to say that the legal profession has suddenly turned egalitarian, but we are moving in the right directions, you know, and I guess slow and steady will eventually win the race. But uh, Rohan, is there uh, also a danger to only relying on the judiciary? I know the Parliament, for instance, or at least not the Parliament, but maybe the counts, uh, the uh, Attorney General said that it's the Parliament who should decide on this. And obviously, they are clearly against granting uh, marriage equality. But overall, do you think there is a, gen- a danger to only relying on judiciary to take to have these, uh, like to to make case for uh, justice or social justice, given the fact that in many previous uh, verdicts, and I'm not taking any names of any previous chief justices, but uh, there have been actions which have been out in the public where they have shown some proximity to the ruling government, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's their judgment or in their public appearances. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that are we overtly relying on the judiciary to for our rights uh, while being completely uh, you know, uh, while understanding the fact that it's the judiciary's role to uphold justice in the country? Layered question, and I'll answer it in multiple segments. Now, your first question was, does, should the parliament do it? Yes, 
it's the parliament's job to legislate. But when the parliament does not act, then it becomes time for the courts to step in and say, this is what the constitution demands. This is how the law will be interpreted and you must do this. And we've not asked the court to legislate. We've asked the courts to interpret a legislation that is fundamentally in the powers of the court under the separation of powers doctrine. The second question, whether we are relying too much on parliament, on the court's answer is yes. One of my fears has been, you know, currently you have judges who are pro-LGBT rights uh, on the bench, who authored verdicts on pro-LGBT rights. What happens when these judges go? What happens when you are faced with a situation like the United States where judges are not in favor of LGBT rights? It is then that those of us that are queer Indians will have to come out on the streets, lobby with politicians, lobby with state legislators and make our case before them as well. But you cannot understand this decourse of what is happening in terms of the attacks on civil society in India today, right? Uh, civil society organizations are being clamped down on heavily. You have the Money Laundering Act that's been used. You have the FCRA, which is the Foreign Contributions Regulation Act, which is being used. All of these are used down to clamp down on the civil society. If you speak in a tone that's different to what the government wants you to speak. So in that, there's a massive attack on the civil society organizations themselves, right? The government is not doing anything for queer people. Let's be very honest. The Garimagres are starving for funds. They have taken a stance that is vehemently opposite to queer rights. The Trans Act in 2019 was passed without consultation with the community. These are just some of the things that are happening. And this is not just, stands opposite are not just the BJP. It is governments across the political spectrum, right? We will hold all of them to account. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the work that's happening on the grassroots. This work does not find itself on the front pages of newspapers. And that is why perhaps a lot of us never read it. We don't read about a Grace Bano getting detained because she was pet she was on the streets demanding reservations for trans people outside the Tamil Nadu Assembly. We don't work here of the tireless work that organizations uh, and people like Santa Khurai, Vajayanti, Vasanta Mughali have been doing around the country, which may is not glamorous as getting up in court and making passionate speeches, but it is nevertheless. We those of us that are in courts who are making these cases, we stand on the shoulders of these grassroots activists who make it their life's work to champion these causes. And without them, we would not be here. Look at what happened in 377 cases, for example. Decades worth of backbreaking works distributing condoms, HIV awareness. Who was it done by? Your working class people, uh, Dalit Bhaujan Adivasi folks, trans sex workers, trans sex workers from Dalit Bhaujan Adivasi backgrounds. And then you have, you know, decades worth of momentum building right until 2009 in NAS Foundation, up to 2018 in NAFTA, that goes on, right? So it's at least it starts from late. 90s, if you can ever call it a movement, starts from the late 90s and comes right down to 2023. And what we've seen from 1990s to 2018 has been one step of how a social movement is actually built, right? Through decades worth of grassroots activism, through changing attitudes. Uh, I think one of the reasons that in my understanding, and if I may say so, that the, the same was perhaps not done for the marriage petitions. These petitions were first filed, and then we sought to change the attitudes. Uh, was that a smart legal strategy? Perhaps. 
was it a smart strategy as a social justice movement no was this an issue that you know affects a lot of us yes but what about the transact right what about the talkouts of anti retrovirals that are happening around the country today we don't find mentions of these cases on the front pages because they are not as glamorous right uh, it's no impassioned speeches on what the constitution demands of us in court being live streamed and perhaps that is why we don't hear of these these activists these lawyers who work in district courts in the high courts who you know ensure that there are police protection orders given to queer couples who ensure that parents of a queer couple are not able to forcefully separate them using state machinery so all that work may perhaps not be as glamorous but it is still happening day in and day out and mm-hmm. that i think needs to be applauded and pointed out by those of us who perhaps have the privilege and perhaps have the visibility perhaps a lot of us need to learn how to pass on the mic to these activists um uh, i may have been guilty of that at some level and i think it involves a lot of reflection on everybody who you know claims to be a rights activist to introspect about who are they advocating for uh who how much space do they occupy even within the movement is the, the movement currently being represented by upper class upper caste cis people and so those are the questions that we as a movement have to deal with and we have failed to deal with it the kind of visibility that the marriage petition got the petition for horizontal reservations did not get the kind of visibility that marriage petitions got the transact did not get thousands of people have come out for marriage equality a lot of people have not come out for horizontal reservations why is that and it's not just allies it's also people within the movement who since have you, to answer these questions yeah sorry uh, so since you specifically referred to the horizontal uh, reservation uh, for trans people and gender not perhaps even i don't know if uh, how the term is being employed in uh, sort of the demands whether it's of Grace Barno and other people uh, but uh, how do you think then this needs to be taken up by the judiciary because the judiciary is already in the 2014 nalsa judgment made a case right for us uh, uh, social welfare schemes but then the uh, the the onus then falls on the government and also the state governments right so then uh, who do you think where or where rather do you think the reservation demand needs to be taken up for it to get the kind of attention that maybe the marriage equality debates are getting so this is another classic case of where the parliament or the executive should should have stepped in but they have not which is why it is appropriate for the courts to interfere now the only reservation that trans reservation that is there is 1% for karnataka public services where they inserted rule 9d if memory serves me right 1% horizontal reservations cutting across caste caste sections but nalsa said give reservations as obc or scbcs but that is not a correct uh, way of looking at it because you are misreading caste for gender and gender for caste and they are not interchangeable uh, in the way that marginalization affects the two uh, groups uh, and so it's all layered even if you were to see trans people and put them in the category of obc uh what does that have what does that mean it means that you'll also have your uh upper caste trans people who will be eligible for reservation you'll also have uh people from dalit bahujan adivasi backgrounds competing for the same reservation now that is not how uh, the reservation schema was envisioned by dr ambedkar and that is not how the constitution subsequently envisages the reservation scheme now what is the way ahead the way ahead of course is building consensus amongst legislature and trying to make sure a law is passed but if you look at the women's reservation bill and you look at the amount of 
time that it has taken up for the leg- the parliament of india to to pass the women's legislation reservation bill and they've still not done it which ensures 33% reservation for women um trans reservations are a, you know a long shot and when you have demonstrated inaction by the government by the parliament by the executive then it becomes appropriate for the courts to step in if you look at what happened on the last hearing when the petition filed by grace was dismissed by the supreme court the court said that this was a clarification application and thus it might not be maintainable or not be uh not maintainable but not be appropriate to interfere in a clarification application however the chief justice has orally remarked that should a substantive case come before them they would be willing to hear it so we just have to wait and watch cases okay. are coming up for horizontal reservations before various high courts cases in uh i want to say telangana or andhra pradesh in in bomb in the bombay high court in tamil nadu all of these cases are pending now eventually these cases will work their way up the system and i have no doubt that they'll land up at the supreme court at one point or the other and it is then that we will have to uh fight out the battle in court but until then i think we do need to not stop lobbying with the parliament we do not need to stop lobbying with the state governments with executives and see if we can get something done Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, but the women's reservation bill is not—it's uh, not horizontal representation uh, reservation, right? It's vertical, where you get the thirty-three percent, like it's chunk, right? Or is it horizontal as well? So the way it works is that allocation of seats out of all of the seats, one third of the total number of seats. which are reserved for scheduled caste and scheduled tribes continue to be remain to be reserved for scheduled caste and scheduled tribe women that was the whole motive behind it and so one third of seats across so it's not perhaps not be right to say horizontal reservation because we don't um yeah because i remember some opposition i think it was uh, samajwadi party uh, if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. some opposition but this is long time back like maybe a decade back uh, on the ground that these seats might actually be used by upper caste uh, women only so they were uh, you know scared of losing their seats but anyway that's a that's a different uh, conversation and i want to sort of uh, move forward with and especially because i can see you're very tired so um given the focus on marriage itself uh, there is obviously a criticism uh, that this is also taking away attention from other issues such as the labor laws uh, and particularly the lack of employment for uh, working class trans people in particular uh, who often like you know gets tokenized and just mentioned so what is then the next like beyond the marriage question what is next for or what is simultaneously rather going with regard to queer uh, rights or justice in india or should happen uh so i think what has happened in india is when we started off the queer rights movement right uh it was a single issue movement in opposition to 377 the broad movement as is understood uh but there were thousands of other movements that perhaps did not get the attention as i was talking earlier and the same thing is happening grace's work has been tireless the work that we organizations like nazaria and rituparna etc have been doing creating safe spaces for chosen families that work has been incredible now what is next i think that is not for me to answer i think that needs to be a call that is taken by the community and as a part of the community of course i have my own views about what needs to be next or what needs or if there should be a next in terms of the kind of attention that it one thing gets and others don't uh but of course the demand for horizontal reservation is definitely something that is catching up you have the anti bullying movement that is catching up in schools you have demand for inclusivity in workplace that's catching up of course 
there has been a long-standing demand for an anti-discrimination and a hate speech law, which has, uh, you know, been pending by the community and which has not sought, kind of seen the light of the day. But these are a few things that are, that should be on the checklist of the movement. Now, how do we prioritize all of them is a call that perhaps the movement has to take in consonance with all the activists. Uh, I'm not a fan of people single-handedly rushing to court without broader consensus and community consultation. So we'll see. We'll see how the movement pans itself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Rituparna. Uh, I remember, I think, uh, Rituparna Bora along with uh, Minakshi Shanal, Chaynika Shah, and I think Maya Sharma and a lot of other uh, people also find the, filed a petition where they wanted to recognize non, uh, um, like non-marital ties within the realm of kinship and to have, you know, give them the same legal rights. So I'm also looking forward to what the court has to say. Yeah, so uh, am I. So am I. I think, you know, I think even if the court does not adjudicate on those things, but the court still say puts in a few paragraphs about the violence which is meted out by natal families on queer people, that'll make getting protection orders easier in the law with the district courts and the high courts. That'll make other things easier like petition like petitions where you see police protection, where you see not to be separated from your partner. So even if the court does not adjudicate on it, but kind of puts out a few paragraphs on it, I think it will make the other battles for our chosen families so much more easier. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that petition was also interesting in that it sort of recognizes the disjunction between the... Uh, and a critique of marriage as an inherently patriarchal and casteist institution. And I'm not going to shy away from that critique. Rather, I, I would say that, look, it is a faulty institution. Yes, it is casteist. Marriage, queer marriage, like straight marriage, is going to once again reinforce caste and class hegemonies in marriage. But at the same time, we cannot ignore that it is a legitimate legal need. It is a need for you to do the simplest of things like open bank accounts, like give money to your partner and not have it, uh, you know, not have to explain it. It is like giving on, like adopting children together, right? Because law in India today recognizes a single person as eligible to adopt but not a live-in couple. So for adoption, marriage becomes important. So yes, marriage is a faulty institution. Would I prefer that we have a better alternative? Yes. But until we have that better alternative, I will continue to keep advocating for marriage equality. And secondly, it's also for me as much of a claim of equality as it is a claim of marriage. We are people should have the the option to opt in to marriage, but they should not have to be reduced to the status of a second-class citizen because simply because they are queer. Yeah, and you and you mentioned adoption. That reminds me. I think one of the bodies which opposed it is perhaps the body in India which controls adoption of children. Yes. So they get, I read some of the parts of so the Ministry of Women and Child Affairs under whom you have the you have CARA, which is C-A-R-A, which is the uh, Central Adoption Regulatory Authority. Uh, it opposed adoption for uh, for your people. Now, if you look at the data that they've cited, it's all from the 40s, 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s, and some from the late 2010, 2016. But my point is, you look at the meta-analysis that has been recently published in the Global Health BMJ, and it will tell you that if you look at the studies, there is overwhelming evidence that shows that children in non-heterosexual settings do better, if not as good as children of state couples in a range of matrices from 
academics to emotional well-being, so on and so forth. So I think, look, we can do nothing but wait for the court to decide on this issue. And if the court decides on marriage and adoption, it is well and good. Otherwise, you know, we'll have to go back to the court and argue that case out on its own merit. So until then, we can do nothing but wait until the judgment comes out because we don't know when, because we don't know what the judgment will be like. We don't know how far will the judgment go. We don't know what will be the contours of marriage that the judgment allows us to have. So as long as judgment is out, I think we'll have to wait and see as to what the next steps are for seeking equality in a marriage setting. And I'll take this moment to sort of transition into your role as a bioethicist. Um, uh, Could you just like briefly explain what is the role, like who is a bioethicist and uh, especially in relationship to our environment and justice, you know, what what does a bioethicist do? Well, uh, this is the one time when I forget, you know, years worth of education in bioethics, but Bioethics basically broadly seeks to study ethical, social, and legal issues that arise in biomedicine and biomedical research. So that kind of spans three broad branches. First is your area of medical ethics. The second is your environmental ethics. And the third is your animal ethics. So I focus mainly on uh, medical and animal ethics in that I have found myself in litigation involving uh, Jalika 2 in South India before the Supreme Court. I have been involved with other medical litigation in India. But so that is what a bioethicist does. Bioethicists think. Uh, and they think about these issues. They think about what is the right way or the ethical way, if there is such, of going about medicine, environmental ethics, and animal research. Uh, How does it inform your own uh, advocacy, like when it comes to queer justice and trans justice? Like, uh, are there any intersections? Uh, Because I'm uh, I'm thinking largely in terms of where, uh, let's say in a city like my city, like Kolkata, or for that matter, you know, where I did my most of my higher studies in Delhi, uh, certain populations are pushed into certain locations and uh, have only access to certain resources or how they are, uh, you know, policed in those uh, locations. So does it, does it come up uh, in any of the court cases that you might be uh, interested in or working right now? Yes, but I do not wish to speak about it because these cases are still pending before the courts. And so, uh, you know, there are some level of professional ethics that I would say right. to maintain. But let me say this. Let me say this about the broad issue. Uh, so much of my work and my getting drawn to a bioethics, towards bioethics was because I was placed in a situation where every time I would go every few months for an HIV test, I would be met with stairs. I would be met with, oh, Q Karwana, I had to go test. Uh, you know, why do you want to get tested? Oh, are you gay? How many partners do you have? You know, things that were absolutely immaterial to the tests that I wanted to get done. That's the first part. The second part is how do we understand marginalization, right? Uh, marginalization in terms of whether there is affirmative healthcare for trans people, whether there is affordable healthcare for trans and working class people who are both cis and trans, uh, straight and gay. And so a lot of my work uh, is spent advocating for a healthcare system that is truly inclusive and not just uh, seeking affirmative care for trans people, but also a doctor's visit. You know, a doctor's visit can be extremely dehumanizing, even for fever or even for a minor cut that you need to get dressed at a hospital. I think for so many of us, and you know, I've had access to the finest care in the finest hospitals. I want to caveat it with that. Uh, but a lot of people don't have that access. And if I am if if I am able to kind of find myself in situations that are extremely dehumanizing, I can only imagine what it what it what happens to 
and a person who is not able to afford that care. And we've seen examples, right? Uh, we've seen examples of Ananya Kumari Alex, for example, the first trans radio jockey in India who found herself screaming in pain at the hospital only for it to be ignored. She died after getting gender-affirming care at one of the hospitals in the South. What does that tell us? It tells us that no matter how good of a care that you are able to afford, if you are queer, if you are not upper class, if you are not upper caste, you will be left to die. You will be left to die and you even you will be accorded a most painful death. And there are, there are no studies which have kind of seen how trans people were able to access healthcare. There's no primary data available for us. Yes, there's brilliant work done by doctors like, uh, you know, Trinetra and Aksa Sheikh. But how many doc? there are, I think there's this one post which said that there are 14 to 20 out and proud trans doctors in this country. What does that mean for a country where conservative figures place queer people at 1.4 million, 1.4 million, 14 to 20 doctors, where does it leave us? Now, that is not to say, of course, that only, you know, queer and trans people can give queer affirmative care. But you look at data from, data from medical school, you look at data from uh, anecdotal data from the kind of stuff that goes around conversion therapy, you look at what's happening with most people saying, oh, this is homosexuality and quote-unquote lesbianism is something we can cure. And so, you know, it it, it, it is the, the area of access to care for uh, queer and trans people is, is, in, is dismal, is is going and it's not going to happen overnight but there is still that needs extensive sensitive medical training and medical education if you are going to ensure affirmative care for trans and queer people uh thank you so much rohin that was my last question any final thoughts anything that you want oh, to oh none say? whatsoever <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, thank you so much and thank you for fighting the fight uh, for everyone in the courts. Well, uh, court. you know, as I like to say, I, stands on, I stand on shoulders of giants. Uh, none of these fights would have happened without the works of grassroots activists. I am a part of the perhaps a hundred lawyers uh, who were able to make it to the Supreme Court, but there are a lot of activists and lawyers whose work does not get the kind of attention that it deserves. So it is on their shoulders that I stand. And if we sh if all of us owe a collective debt, it is to them and to those grassroots activists. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the next time I'm in Mumbai, let's meet. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. If you're in Bombay or Delhi, whenever you are, uh -huh. uh, give me a shout out and we'll get drinks. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye.